I am so honored to be here. I've been blessed by the songs from the senior choir, from the band, uh, the worship band. And I think we just give God a hand clap. Let's thank God for that. I just love the songs talking about God's spirit, about God using us, Christ be magnified in us. And that's really what it all is about. Aren't we glad that it doesn't depend upon us, but that God gives us the power to do his work, that God gives us the power to enjoy his presence? We could not do that on ourselves, by, by ourselves. I'm glad to be here. And before I officially start the sermon, I just want to clarify something um, uh, in the program, and this belongs, this is Mike Allen, who, a dear friend, his fault, he put in there Dr. Bobby Watts. Um, he knows full well I am not a doctor, I am not a physician, I am not, uh, don't have a doctorate of any kind. Uh, Mike and I got to know each other through his wife, Anne, and, and me attending the Vance Sunday School class. And one of the things about the Vance Sunday School class is we are all silly, so it fit right in. But Mike um, and I got to know each other also from uh, going to layman's lessons, which I've done for a while, hope to resume, but he's been steadfast in doing that. Um, so Mike is just, he uses his retirement as well as anyone I know, always helping people, always helping the church, helping uh, uh, ministries. So I hate to say this about, a pill, about the pillar of the church, but you can't always believe Mike. So... Um, if Mike tells you something about me, um, so far he's told people that I was quarterback of my college team, that I was a star pitcher. I've never played organized football or baseball. So if he tells you something good about me, probably don't believe it. If it's bad, believe it. So um, I am just so glad to be here. Um, came here um, four years ago, moved from New York City, where I spent basically my whole life, born in North Carolina, but basically lived in New York City, worked there my whole life, came here, um, and uh, just was staying nearby, was looking for a church, looked this up, um, I saw a good sermon series, came, um, then I asked, uh, according to my recollection, Ann Allen, says there a Sunday school, like adult Sunday school, she said, come with me. And the Vance Sunday School um, has just been such a blessing. Uh, Bill Vance just really knows the Word of God and the class. They've been together for so long, but they've been extremely open to newcomers. Um, me, my family, there have been others that have come in the four years that I've been here, just integrated in, and I'm just really, really grateful. I was really glad when Pastor asked me would I be um, willing uh, to preach. Um, and um, when he told me when, I said, that's right when you're, I said, is that in the uh, series of Acts? And he said, no, it's right after. I love the book of Acts. And when Pastor started the sermon series, I, I, I went to him and I said, I, you know, I just finished arranging my bookshelves. I have some good uh, uh, commentaries, some classics on Acts that are out of print if you want to use them. I said, F.F. Uh, Bruce, his student, I am Marshall, John Stott. Uh, and uh, I said, these are out of print. You can't get them. And forgetting how old I am and the difference, he said, I have those. I said, really? He said, yeah, I have them electronically. And I said, oh, of course. So, um, so but it turns out I can preach right after this, um, right, after, uh, we, um, right after he finished his part of the series because, as he said last week, this is a recap, a continuing. So I want to, he talks about arrows in the hand of God. 
And that is what we, the church, are to be. We have the word. We are the people. We're filled with the spirit that empowers us. We have the gospel. And then we go forth in Jesus' name. So I want to recap um, the book of Acts, really with looking at one key verse, Acts 1.8. And this, many people say this is the table of contents for the book of Acts. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We want to focus upon that because not only does this table of contents tell us the geographic spread of the gospel, it tells us about the spread of the gospel from Jews to people, to non-Gentiles, to Samaritans who are half Jews and half Gentiles, and then to Gentiles, to the ends of the earth. And I want to start with what, one of my life verses, Romans 1.16, which says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the, for the Gentile. I want to read that again. And we'll see that this passage in Acts 16 that we'll talk about really exemplifies the power of the gospel. So I really love this. It's guided me through my life since I've been a Christian. It says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. So I want to focus on Acts 16, and it's a long passage, so I'll break it up in sections. But it really focuses on three distinct individuals. It focuses on the gospel's effect on Lydia, a rich, well-to-do merchant lady, a seller of purple cloth. It focuses on a slave girl who is possessed by a spirit, and also by a Roman jailer. Three very distinct people. And many commentators, and, and I share this view, that Paul distinctly chose them from those who were the converts in Philippi to show the power of the gospel to reach all kinds of people and to break all kinds of barriers. So we'll de- we'll, we'll, we will delve into that. So first, I want to just start by reading the first part, Acts 16.12. It says, from there... We travel to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. A few things to point out. You see we a few times in this, just this one verse. So Luke, who wrote Acts and wrote the book of Luke, wrote this. And there are some parts where he was an eyewitness and a participant. So he's, see, he's talking about what he's seen, what he's felt, what he's experienced. So so it's important because there are some parts just in this chapter where it says we, and then it moves where it's not the we. And I think it's important we look at at why. So they traveled to Philippi, and he describes it in two ways. He says it was a leading city of that district, and it was situated right on the crossroads between a major road going east and west. It used to be a Greek colony, and then it was captured by the Romans. It was named after Philip II, who was the father of Alexander the Great. And then it wasn't just part of the Roman Empire. About 42 BC, it became a Roman colony. And that's important. A colony was a special designation for a city. And what was special, it brought a great deal of pride to those who were there. It wasn't just that they were under Roman law, but they were like an outpost of Rome itself. 
Their, consti- their city constitution was the same as the constitution of Rome. They had to adopt the, not just the laws, but the policies, the, the values, the customs of Rome. It's like they were a mini outpost of Rome right there. And after it became a Roman colony, um, to emphasize this, both for control and order, um, they placed a lot of retired soldiers there who became the city officials. So first one we want to look at, now that we know the setting, we want to look at Lydia. So it says, on the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. One of the things is that there was no synagogue, apparently, in Philippi. It had a small Jewish population. And to have a synagogue, you had to have ten Jewish men. So Paul, whenever he traveled somewhere new to evangelize, he often would go and look for a synagogue. There was none, so he found, was looking for some Jews. We expected them to be praying on the Sabbath, gathering together whoever was there to pray. And so he finds them, and he starts to preach to them, to tell them about Christ. It says one of those was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. Thyatira, we see that in the book of Revelation. One of the letters to the seven churches is one of them is the Thyatira. One of the things it was well known for is what that they were very well skilled in in purple in purple dyes in manufacturing purple dyes and purple cloth. It was very expensive, which is why purple was often the color of royalty. Not everyone could afford it. So Lydia was a dealer, a merchant woman in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God, meaning that she was not Jewish. She was a Gentile, but she knew enough and believed enough about the Jewish ways and about the Jewish God that she followed them. But she had not become a a full-born convert. So she would follow the rules, she would follow the laws, the beliefs, and the behaviors of Jews, and so she was with them. So the God opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And then she opened her home after she was baptized to the, to the, to the apostles. Said, come to our house. And she persuaded us. A very wealthy woman. The second w- one woman we see is the slave girl. And we read in verse 16. Acts 16, verse 16. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. It says that this slave girl had a spirit by which she predicted the future. And that same spirit recognized Paul and his his friends, and we know who they were. It was Paul, it was Luke, we know, because Luke was there. Reading the earlier verse, it was also Silas. 
and it was Timothy. So at least those four were with them. And they recognized as servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Now, in both Greek and Roman culture, salvation was something that was valued. It doesn't have the same connotation that we had, that we, that we have, that we understand it to mean. But it was something that they desired. So we would see often when Jesus, when demons would recognize who Jesus was, he would tell them to be quiet. Here, what they're saying was true. Paul, Silas, Timothy, Luke were servants of the Most High God who were, who were telling people the way to be saved. But I think just like Jesus, Paul and God does not want his name and his gospel associated with the occult in any way. He doesn't want them to get credit by, by associating in, un, in impure ways with the name of Jesus or with the gospel. It's so important that we keep the gospel pure. It's not to be mixed with the occult. It's not to be mixed with other practices. It's not mixed, supposed to be mixed with politics in the sense that it shapes our politics or our culture. The gospel is to shape our culture, not to have our culture shape the gospel. Now, when her owners realized in verse 19 that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. Now, there's a few accusations here. Only one could possibly be true. Uh, as, a, as a reason to bring them before the magistrates. And that was whether they were th- causing the city to be put into an uproar. The Romans valued order above uh, almost everything else, and it was a crime to create a public disturbance. But where did they begin their attack? It said, these men are Jews, and they are advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. Now, practically, in practical terms, it was not unlawful, or at least it was, very, it was tolerated that people could preach other religions as long as they weren't causing a disturbance. Now, did Paul and Silas cause a disturbance? No. They, would, they just cast the spirit out. It was the, their owners who did that. And look to whom... Now, who was dragged before... Now, here we're going to have some audience participation. Who was dragged before the magistrates? Paul and Silas. How many people were there when he cast out the spirit from the women? From the woman? Four. Paul, Silas, Luke, and Timothy. Paul and Silas were Jews. Luke was a Gentile. And Timothy was half Gentile and half Jews. But they only picked out the Jews. And many, including F.F. Uh, Bruce, says this was latent anti-Semitism that they appealed to. They appealed to their patriotic pride, say, us Romans against these Jews. When really all this was doing was masquerading, masking their, concern, their top concern, which was what? Money. Said when, Luke says when they saw that their means of making money was gone... This is what they did. We have to be careful. And this is true of all times. 
Satan will use things and dress it in spiritual garb to mask greed, to mask prejudice. And we see this here, and we see it throughout history, and we see it in our world today. We then come to the jailer. Verse 23. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Now, the Roman jailer was almost definitely uh, an ex-military guy. And I, for the sake of alliteration, I started to call this the seller, the slave, and the sergeant. But uh, I decided I'll just be true and just call it the seller, the slave, and the jailer. But he was one who was duty-bound to Rome. I have great respect for our military. They know how to follow orders. They know how to sacrifice. They know what they have to. They know the price of loyalty and the importance of loyalty. He had a duty. He was told to guard them carefully, so he fulfilled his duty. He not only placed them in the inner part of the jail, would be hard for them to escape, it says he also placed the, their feet in the stocks. Now, we've seen pictures of stocks from the Puritan days and the early days of this country, right? It's two pieces of wood. Uh, they open up. They have a big head, a hole for the head, two for the hands on each side, so the person is spread out, and sometimes for the feet, Now, Roman stocks had multiple openings for the feet so that they can spread the legs out as far as they could to create maximum discomfort and pain. So there are a few miracles here that happen in this this passage. The first one is that at about midnight, Paul and Silas were doing what? Praying and singing. Praying and singing to God. That's one miracle in pain, in prison, unjustly beaten, unjustly imprisoned, but they are praying and singing hymns to God. The second one was the other prisoners were listening to them. It's midnight. They they could be saying, shut up, go down, I want to sleep. But they were listening to them. There was something, something is supernatural. And this is such a great part of our witness when we can rejoice in times of suffering so that the world sees that, yes, we may have trouble, we may have sickness, but we don't respond the same way. As as John Stott says, the power of their response to suffering was supernatural. And it says, the legs in the stocks feel no pain when the heart is in heaven. And that is what praise and prayer does. It lifts us above our circumstances in ways that are supernatural. One of the things that Dee and I have really uh, enjoyed and admired as we've gotten to know people in this church, in our Sunday school, we say, when we've said this to each other, when you look at them, you think their life is easy, they've had it. You would not know until you get to know them what suffering they have gone through or what suffering that they have. One of those person is one of my favorite who I I do miss, um, Don Hornbuckle. Don was a straightforward man. He loved God, he loved his family, and he loved people. Always helping out, always cheerful, one of the first to go down in the kitchen to help cook and love to cook. He told me things as a New Yorker I never knew existed till I came here, like sausage balls, crackling, 
country ham. He would tell me about it, cook it for me, give me some. Um, and as I got to know him, I had no idea about the issues, that he, health problems that he had, um, his legs, uh, cancer, did not know the issues he was dealing with, and we should continue to pray for uh, Debbie and for the health issues with his son, Don, Don Allen, because he was joyful, cheerful. He was a witness at work, a witness wherever he was. That is supernatural, and that is what we need to have. Now, verse 26 through 28 says, Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself. We are all here. Now, so I don't surprise you and take you by surprise, I'm going to do a Christian rap that we sang in our house when my kids were growing up about this passage. It's short, but um, if you ask me, this is the great thing about the truth set to music. You remember it. I can't tell you the name of the song. I can't tell you who wrote it, but I remember these lyrics. Paul and Silas were thrown in jail. They bound them up without the bail. They didn't moan and groan. They didn't rant and rave. Paul turned to Silas and said, brother, let's praise. They sang God's praise until the jailhouse shook. The jailer came in and he took a look. He would have killed himself out of fear. But Paul said, stop, because we're all here. So the jailer got set. So the jailer got saved, set totally free. And not just him, but his family. So if, if you're ever bound up and don't know what to do, turn to Acts 16 and read the chapter 2. I'm going to praise him in the morning. going to praise him at noon from the 1st of January to the last of June. By that time, I will remember. I'm going to praise the Lord to the end of December. Let's praise. And then it goes on. And then it goes on to talk about praising God in all circumstances, wherever we are, whatever we are doing through. And we see the power of praise was part of the miracles that God raised. One miracle was that they were singing and praising. Another miracle was that the prisoners were listening, were listening. Another miracle is when the earthquake came, all their chains fell off. Another miracle is that the prisoners didn't escape. They were so filled and aware of the supernatural presence of God in that earthquake that they didn't leave. So, the, so that when the jailer came in and was going to kill himself, he was willing to listen to Paul and say, and he could see. He asked for lights to verify. He didn't trust, but he verified and saw that all the prisoners were there. The power of God, not only... Has the power to set people free. It puts them in right relationship. So next we see, the, he checked, the prisoner, the jailer said um, he wasn't there. So verse 29, the jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? The Jews, excuse me, the Greeks and the Romans valued salvation, even though they, un- they didn't have our understanding. But he realized there was something supernatural with these people, that they were even able to keep the prisoners from escaping, that they not only didn't run away, they were able to keep others from running away. And the jailer was not just happy that he didn't need to kill himself, because under Roman custom, if you were responsible for a prisoner and that prisoner escaped, you have to bear the penalty for which they would uh, bear if they were found guilty. So here was a whole jail of prisoners, maybe some of them murderers, whatever. So he knew, and his duty was to kill himself. 
But here it says, he says, what must I do to be saved? Verse 31, they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of God to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took him and washed, took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. So it's so interesting that when the jailer said, what must I do to be saved? He was no longer talking about saving his life. He saw that, they were, that the prisoners had not escaped. He didn't need to take his life. Here he's talking purely in spiritual mean, means, matters. He saw what they had, and he realized this is something he didn't, because they were praising in the darkness, because they were preaching the word of God. So he asked, what must I do to be saved? So they told him, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Then they spoke the word of God to him. Then the jailer washed their wounds, then he was baptized, and then brought them into his house. And it says he was filled with joy. It doesn't, and it gives us the reason, not because he didn't have to kill himself, not because the prisoners didn't escape, not because he was derelict uh, in his duty, but because he had come to believe in God, he and his, all, his whole household. One of the things we talk with Acts 1.8, it says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Then you will be my witness. We all, there are many different churches and many different experiences, ways that people experience him, the Holy Spirit. But one of the things, there are some things that are in common. He makes us holy. He gives us power to be his witnesses and a desire to be his witnesses. And we have the fruit of the Spirit, which includes joy. So already the, uh, the jailer said he was filled with joy, fruit of the Spirit. Now, just going to spend the rest of our time talking about, delving in just a little bit about each of these three characters. Lydia, the, the, the slave girl, and the jailer. To talk and to see how they exemplify how God breaks down every kind of barrier. So, some of the barriers, or one of the barriers, are socioeconomic. These three people were in very different socioeconomic places. Lydia was independent. She was a successful businesswoman. She was wealthy. She had a house that was big enough to invite the four apostles to come stay with us, to stay with her. She had um, servants. She probably had children, and she may have been a widow. But she was in a place where she was wealthy, making independent decisions, running a business. Contrast her with the slave girl. There is no position lower in Roman society than a female slave. And she was possessed by a spirit. She was from the highest economic wealthy person to a slave person. And the jailer was a middle-level government official, probably middle-class but it made no difference when it came to responding to the gospel. They were of different nationalities or ethnic groups. It tells us that Lydia was from Asia, from Thyatira, from Asia, and she was an immigrant to, uh, into Philippi. The slave girl was probably native and probably Greek, and the jailer was Roman. 
and not just a Roman citizen, a proud Roman citizen, an ex-military uh, officer, an, an official of the government in a colony, very proud of his, um, of his Romanness. All three, but it made no difference. They were in different places, spirituality, in relations to spirituality or even just religion. Lydia was a worshiper of God seeking after Judaism. Not completely there, but understanding and fearing and worshiping the God of Israel. The slave girl, look at her spiritual condition. Possessed in, in, this, in, our, in our church Bible, it, uh, the CSB, it says she had a spirit. But no, she didn't. The spirit had her. She was possessed by the spirit. The spirit controlled what she said. She had no control of herself. As John Stott said, she was doubly oppressed, economically as well as spiritually. And the Roman jailer uh, was a Roman official. He engaged in emperor worship and probably also worship of the other Roman gods. The last one I want to talk about, the barrier where it doesn't matter, and that is gender. Note that two of the three that Luke chose to profile were women. And in the Roman times, the Roman culture, women had almost no rights. Uh, they, they had to be dependent upon their husbands. They had, there were one exception, which is why I believe Lydia was wealthy and probably was a widow or certainly had children. Women could not engage in legal transactions on their own unless they were a born free woman who had three children, or a freed woman, woman who bought her, her, her freedom, and they had four children. So we know that Lydia was there, and she was engaged uh, in, in business uh, on her own. So she uh, was a, a woman with a means, with rights, unlike the slave girl. No rights whatsoever, not even to her own person. And then the Roman jailer, obviously, was a man. You say, well, why is that a barrier? Well, he wasn't just a man. He was a macho man. He was a soldier. Uh, he was a jailer, uh, correct, over jail, over hardened criminals. And whatever it is about us men, wherever you go in the world, you generally will find more women than men in church. There is something about us that we aren't as readily available or uh, um, not as readily willing to admit our need for outside help for God. So, in a sense, that was a barrier. But God swept away all those barriers, the socioeconomic, the national, the ethnic barrier, the spiritual, religious barriers, the gender barriers. They all fell before the power of the gospel. God breaks every barrier. The gospel can break every barrier between God and people. And this is where you can say, Amen. And... I also want to point out that it doesn't just, the gospel doesn't just break the barrier, every kind of barrier between every kind of person and God. It also breaks down the barriers between all kinds of different people. John Stott and, uh, and John Piper make a big deal of this. And they point out that they believe, or at least John Piper believes, goes so far as to say, he thinks that these were chosen specifically to create a diverse church in Philippi. And certainly it shows that they were brought together uh, in Christ, despite all of their differences. The gospel breaks down every barrier between God and people, and the gospel can break down every barrier between people. 
Paul wrote to Galatians and, and, and to the church at Galatia. And he said, whether you're a slave, he said there is no slave or free, Jew, Gentile, male or female, when it comes to coming in Christ. We are all of equal value in God's sight, regardless of our state, and the gospel can reach us, no matter where we are in society, no matter what our spiritual condition is. I want to conclude by just talking about three different areas. That because the gospel reaches everyone, that means that everyone needs the Lord. Everyone needs the Lord. And the gospel, that's why the gospel can reach everyone. And that we know, but I have to confess, there are times that I have forgotten that. One of my uh, stints in full-time ministry, I was a living counselor at a rescue mission in lower Manhattan. Uh, it was just for men. And I, so I lived there with the guys for a year. Slept with them. Where they slept, I slept. Where they ate, I slept. They got to know them, got to work with them. I was, uh, and um, really saw God move in some lives, not as many as we wanted, of course, but in some lives dramatically and others slow and gradually but lasting. And it was wonderful to see. And my second year of living there, um, I started graduate school. So I only had responsibilities in the, um, in the morning, excuse me, in the evening and, and at night. So I wake up, eat, eat with the guys, understand their weaknesses, their problems, and go uptown, took the A train, Duke Ellington's famous, take the A train to, um, to, um, to my campus. And then I was kind of like in awe. Most of my students, it was public health, most of my students were like physicians, real, real doctors, uh, Mike. Um, they were physicians, uh, the professors, many of them were doctors, had their second doctorate, some had to, and I was like in awe. And then as I got to know them and was doing research with them, I saw these are broken people too. And I had forgotten. I said, God, Forgive me for forgetting. Regardless of what people look like on the outside, no matter how together they look, everyone needs the Lord. And there were some that really were together, but they were still lost because they didn't know Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. So we need to remember that everyone needs the Lord. And the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for for the, then for the Gentile. And I want to say one last thing. Paul is in prison. Another time he was in prison, he wrote. He said, I'm in chains, but the gospel is not chained. And I've been thinking about that for a long time. The gospel is not chained. And I think the only way the word doesn't get out, the power of the gospel is not released, if we, his people, who have the gospel, hold it in. Now, I grew up in Brooklyn, which they call the borough of churches. But I can say that I do not ever remember hearing the gospel uh, until I left for college. I didn't grow up in a Christian home, was not exposed to the idea that I was a sinner. I had no, I did not know that. I knew vaguely what Christmas was about, knew vaguely what uh, Easter was about, but didn't really understand the gospel at all. Don't ever remember anybody telling me. And um, I really appreciated uh, last uh, Sunday, pastor, towards the end of his sermon, talking about the gospel, that Christianity is a global religion. And as I thought about preparing for this, the first time I ever remember someone telling me the gospel was on a five-hour bus ride. I was just in college. Six weeks later, 
Um, my father passed away. I didn't really grow up with him. I didn't really know him, but flew down to North Carolina where he was born and where I was born and where he was buried, then went back with my mom to New York uh, and then took the ride on a bus up to uh, New York City. Happened to, be, happened to be sitting next to a graduate student from Africa who was a Christian. So I was telling what happened, and for the first time, I remember, it didn't really sink in, but she was telling me. And then I kept running into her, and then wherever I went on campus, I had, all the students I would meet, my, were my friends, were Christians, and they were telling me about Christians. So I started going to church, started reading the Bible, started going to Bible studies, and it took me about a year until I really believed, and another half year until I was really w- willing to turn my life over to Christ. And then I went back home. And I, I opened up my school yearbook and just looking, and I saw there was a Christian club called the Seekers. And then I knew some of the people there, so over time I called them and I said, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell me? Uh, what if I had died? Why didn't you tell me? And um, I'm not just saying that for them, I'm saying it for myself. I saw how often or how little do I really share the good news compared to the opportunities I have? God's word is not chained unless we don't share it. We are his light. We are salt. Jesus said, what good is a light if you put the cover on it? Um, we have to let our light shine. We have to be salt in the world. One of the things I so appreciate about this church and about Pastor, for the last three years, he's been urging us and equipping us to go out from, uh, who is my, from the series, Who is My Neighbor, to right here, right now, to hands, uh, the arrows in the hands of God, urging us to take the, take the Holy Spirit's equipping and move forward. Now, you notice that when Paul spoke to Lydia and when he spoke to the jailer, it said that he not just said believe to the jailer, not just believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That is true. That's the formula. But then each, of the, each time it says he, he spoke the word of God to them. He gave them the message. And one of the things I so appreciate, the missionary who was here, a son-in-law of a, of a long-standing family here that in a creative access nation, so I won't say his name, won't say the nation, um, came here and then one of his... Uh, colleagues here in the states in Tennessee, uh, Jim Ball, arranged a training for some of us, um, or it was open to anyone. We went down and told one way to share the gospel, uh, called the three circles. I've known many other ways: the four spiritual laws, the Roman laws, uh, the, excuse me, the, on the Roman road, other uh, evangelism explosion, and it doesn't matter. But we need to be able to quickly tell people the essence of the gospel. This one is God designed for everyone. His design was perfect, but sin has come in. It's broke, led to brokenness, which is where we are. The good news of the gospel of Jesus came, lived the sinless life that we couldn't live, paid the price for our sins that we shouldn't have to pay, that we don't want to pay, proved it by rising from the dead. And if we turn our lives over to him, we will be saved and restored back to God's original design. Whatever it is, this you can write on a napkin. And so... Um, Casey and Kathy and I, uh, with Jim, went over uh, one day to the apartment house right next to us. Can't be any closer. And we were just walking around praying and then sharing the word. And God opened up one guy's, one young man's uh, heart, just like he did with Lydia. And been following him since, not been able to really have the Bible studies with him as we want. He just moved down to Georgia last week, praying that he'll find a church there, staying in touch. This could have been happening every week, Um, but I didn't. 
and we don't. But we can. God's gospel is a power of salvation for everyone who believes to break every barrier between God and man. And all we need to do is be through his spirit, not in our own strength, open our mouths so he can open hearts and change lives. Then we will truly be arrows in the hand of God for his purpose in this world. Thank you.